1: I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. Today's podcast was recorded during the 35th Critical Care Congress in San Francisco, California. It is released today in conjunction with the upcoming conference, Excellence in Quality and Safety in Critical Care, to be held September 21st through the 23rd, 2006, in Baltimore, Maryland. Our guest for today's podcast is Terry Klemmer, MD, FCCM a well-known and long-standing leader in the field of critical care medicine, with some of his many specific interests in the field, including medical informatics and telemedicine. Dr. Klemmer is the director of critical care at LDS Hospital and professor of medicine at the University of Utah School of Medicine, all in Salt Lake City, Utah. He has served as moderator for the Congress session Creating a Holistic Environment in the ICU, and will share his thoughts with us today on this topic, as well as outcomes in the critically ill patient, and share with us his expertise in effectively managing the ICU environment to maximize quality patient care. Thanks so much for being with us today. I'd like to begin by having you talk with us a little bit about your background. I know you've been involved with both SCCM and critical care for a long time. And perhaps tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: Okay, well. My name is Terry Klemmer, and I um, have been in critical care medicine for many, many years. I started my fellowship in 1971, so I have well over 35 years of uh, experience in critical care. I uh, was initially trained in the military, uh, did my internship uh, and residency in internal medicine at Triple RRR Medical Center, and then was the first fellow in the military in critical care medicine doing my fellowship in San Francisco. Uh, actually farming myself out a lot to uh, the uh, University of California, San Francisco and Presbyterian Hospital since the military didn't have a bona fide fellowship at that time. Uh, After uh, spending some time in the military, I then went to Salt Lake City in 1976 where uh, there was great opportunities for me. And um, the thing that LDS Hospital offered, first of all, was a medical informatics system which was already uh, over 10 years old in critical care medicine. And uh, we offered a lot of opportunities for research and uh, to do some of the quality work that we got into a little bit later. It had a medical informatics system way back, I mean, in, in the... Homer Warner and Reed Gardner started computerizing the ICU in 1964. And to put that into perspective, most university hospitals didn't even have an ICU in 1964. I
1: mean, when they talk about the computers that were used on the, uh, the rockets that took people to the moon, they were smaller than the capacity of calculators now. And so it must have been incredible. What? Oh, yeah. We had, a, we had a
2: huge air-conditioned room. It was uh, filled with a computer, a CDC 3300 computer, that ran the whole hospital on a total of uh, 360 kilobytes of memory. And there were screens throughout the hospital and, and There were like screens that? throughout the hospital, and especially in the ICUs and the ORs and in the cath lab, which is the first areas that they computerized.
1: What was the focus back then, present, primarily presenting lab data and things like that?
2: Uh, primarily, but also doing the online monitoring, capturing the vital signs and stuff automatically, and doing a certain amount of data capture uh, in those days. But And then a lot of it was just... Uh, lab retrieval and those kinds of things.
1: So that certainly gives you quite a head start on trying to develop yeah, research issues.
2: Yes, by the time I arrived there, they were already doing nursing charting and things of that nature uh, into the computer in 1976. Uh, and that's where I got my start in academic medicine also is teaming up with the informatics people. Um, I guess the next the next thing I'd like to say is on holistic medicine. And I think some people... Um, don't have the same idea about it. People think of uh, holistic medicine as acupuncture and music therapy and pet therapy and stuff like that, which all plays a role. But the reality of it is is holistic medicine goes way back. In fact, it was Claude Bernard, uh, who is considered the father of experimental uh, physiology, back in the 1800s. And in uh, 1865, he published his book, the introduction to the study of experimental medicine. And even in that, Claude Bernard was an uh, experimental physiologist and a vivisectionist and studied organs one at a time in isolation, uh, as was the nature in those days. But even then, uh, Claude uh, made the statement that to really understand organ function, you had to do it in the intact animal to really understand how everything interrelates. And so he was uh, really the father in some ways also of the holistic concept. And I think it's an important concept in critical care because all of us realize that um, the physiology of the body can be uh, markedly changed depending upon if we're frustrated or if if we have fear or uh, uh, if we're angry. Uh, All of this changes the physiology of the body remarkably. And so uh I think holistic environment entails to look at all of these aspects of care and um on Tuesday when uh, Joy Sunlove talks at the uh, holistic uh uh session that we're going to have she'll express all of these feelings that she had in the ICU I mean uh when we thought we were doing uh, good by uh, making it quiet in her room and kind of closing the door a little bit and leaving her alone so she could sleep. Uh, she relates this to some of her most terrifying moments because she wasn't sure there was somebody there to watch her and make sure that things were going well. So different uh, patients uh, have different uh, emotions. Uh, and I just look at myself. Uh, we have a whole new generation. To me, the, the best music I can have is silence. I uh, give that to my granddaughters, and uh, they can't stand silence. It's just uh, so foreign to them.
1: Well, why don't you talk a, a little bit more about that? I had an opportunity to interview Kathy Gazetta talking about the issue of, from her perspective, as a holistic nurse, having families present during CPR and during uh, invasive procedures. And, again, it was somewhat counterintuitive to me when I first started doing it, but then I read a lot about it. And, you know, there's a lot of significantly important issues there,
2: and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about uh, that. Uh, they're tremendously important, Uh, Many people uh, don't trust medicine today, and to have somebody there that they do trust alleviates their fear and um, makes the whole situation much more calm and much more controlled in many ways. Again, uh, that depends on the situation and and the individual patient. But uh, family, and and we certainly believe in that and letting family have access to the patients at all times 24 hours a day, Uh, we want them there on rounds. Uh, it's amazing to my, to us how much they contribute during rounds about the patient, who they are, and and uh, what their feelings are about certain things.
1: So, your so your visiting policy then, for as a as an explicit example, is you have a 24/7 family, total open policy. And how um, I know in, in in our unit that can often be a challenge on rounds where they may be asking us questions while we're trying to round. How do you deal with some of those issues?
2: Those are not major issues. We have patients on rounds all the time. And uh, the biggest issue is sometimes they don't understand because of the language we use and stuff like that. And sometimes after rounds, they'll pull pull me to the side and ask me what that discussion was all about. And I've got to translate it over to lay terms. But on the other hand, uh, they will tell us You know, they tried that medication before and it didn't work, something that we may not be aware of that happened in another institution or during another hospitalization. Or they'll come up with an allergy that we were un, uh, involved with. Or they'll tell us that, uh, don't play that music. Uh, they hate that kind of music. They much prefer this kind of music. Or There's just so many things about the patient. And it also,
1: I guess, empowers the family in a very difficult situation. And I, I think I read somewhere that the actual amount of time that they spend in the ICU may actually be less if it can be whenever they want. Or, or I
2: remember I read that somewhere. Uh, I've read that article. I can't say that we have any data on that. I can tell you uh, the time that it takes us to communicate with the family is reduced because the communication really takes place during rounds. And then any further communication is actually quite short and uh, much easier. Uh, so the communication uh, is much easier if the patient's family is during rounds or not. Do you have other uh, examples that uh, of holistic uh
1: nursing that might be able to be applied or holistic medicine that could be applied to the ICU
2: yeah and a lot of this takes us into other areas um i th- i th- i think what the patients want is they want to be safe uh they they want to know what's going on and want to communicate communication is a huge holistic concept in the ICU how do you to communicate with the family or the and with the patient how do you make them understand if they're delirious if they're confused uh suddenly uh that's a a huge communication problem and uh again joy sunlove will will talk about that how she she had delirious uh thoughts and things like that and so what medications we use how we treat delirium and our whole concepts are changing we're moving away from the benzodiazepines, for example, that tend to cause amnesia and confusion and moving more towards the uh, atypical antipsychotics. Uh, and we use those in uh, a lot more now because the patient can be more rational and interface with you and, and still be calm. And so uh, it's the communication is one area. Another area is uh, reliability. Um, that is one of the keys in my estimation, to good critical care medicine is just doing things reliably, Uh, knowing the patient is going to get the reliable care every time. Uh, We really came up with this concept uh, out of a a research uh, study that we did. And this was back in the early 80s where uh, Dr. Gantanoni from Italy had reported a markedly decreased uh, mortality rate by using extracorporeal circulation. Unfortunately, he didn't do any controls, and so we decided to do a study, and we got an NIH grant to study extracorporeal support, uh, but having a control of uh, regular ventilation. It was during that time, though, that uh, my dear colleague, uh, Alan Morris, who was uh, very rigid on research uh, design, said, look, at uh, we can randomize patients, which will take away uh, selective bias, But there's therapeutic bias because this is not blinded, meaning that you can't blind a heart-lung machine sitting by the patient, and everybody's going to know which one is which. And we may, if we favor one therapy over the other, treat that patient differently. And so because of that, the decision was made that we would protocolize the care of both the ventilator and the extracorporeal circuit so that we would make decisions at the same breakpoints, so that we had increase or decrease therapy in the same amounts, uh, that we would uh, have rigid rules about when to withdraw therapy and other things like that, so that we could try to standardize the two limbs as much as we could and remove bias. Well, what we found from that study was only was right. Uh, those with extracorporeal support had a fourfold increase in survival, but so did our protocolized ventilator care. And so uh, they actually, it was a negative study because both groups had the same survival, but it was four times greater than what we'd ever seen before. So we became very, very enthralled with uh, maybe protocolization and maybe standardization care and doing it the same way each time uh, had uh, some reliability to it. And then we started looking uh, around and looking at other industries and things like that and quickly discovered that just about every other industry, they always stabilize their care before they can begin to improve. And so we started applying that concept to glucose control and potassium control and sedation and, and delirium and uh, other things, other aspects of care, and uh, found that uh, each time we did, we improved outcomes. And so standardization of care became very important. And that was used in the ARDS network, of course. The similar protocols, although we had computerized ours by by that time, but similar protocols on paper was used in the ARDS network for the same reasons, to make sure that the low tidal volume and the high tidal volume were treated the same. Um, this then uh, went on, and because as we saw the, uh, the mortality rate drop because of this, um, we learned other things. Uh, for example, in the A.R.D.S. network, even though it was a positive study showing low tidal volumes is better, we know today that still uh, less than fifty percent of the patients are are getting it. So there's still that reliability factor, and that comes down to your holistic environment. How do you create your environment so it happens every time on every patient? And um, but so, do you think?
1: But don't you think uh, again and. It's an issue of the culture, is that at your place you have helped train a group of critical care clinicians that feel that it is a culture, that we are providing the best quality care by doing these protocols, and in other institutions they may say that this, those uh, protocols may not apply to us. I mean, one of the things I was thinking about when you were talking is, why isn't there since there's been so much data that tight glucose control is good why is it that every hospital really does have to kind of reinvent the wheel i mean we're going through this in our hospital our different units have come up with different glucose protocols and it just it seems confusing to me why wouldn't there be some sort of consensus i mean when i was flying across the country to get here you know they don't have to figure out a different way to land at the airports there's a there's a way to do it you know
2: um well, let me talk a little bit about that because that, that's an interesting concept. The um, safety and holistic environment and cultural change, that's a frontline concept. It's not done at a high level. And the way uh, – the biggest reason I create protocols is not to standardize care. It's to change the culture. The process of developing a protocol changes the culture if it's done at the front-line. And uh, and let me give you an example. Let's say uh, we decided to have tight glucose control. Uh, We have to be able to do that and create a protocol and implement it so it's safe, reliable, and gives the results that you want. In order to do that, uh, what we do is we develop a protocol. And our first glucose protocol was 1992. Uh, So it goes way back And uh, what we did is developed a protocol that we thought would work. And uh, we sent it out to all the critical care guys, and uh, most of the nurses had a chance to review it. It's very important to include everybody you can because that's part of changing the culture. Every physician had the opportunity to have input to it. He didn't have to come to any meetings or anything like that, but just sent it out saying, what do you think about it? And about uh, 30% will feedback information to us. They'll say, I don't like this. I think this is too aggressive. Or here's a new paper that you guys didn't look at. And so, uh, but the end, we're really involving them. So when we get to the end, buy-in is almost already done. We then take the protocol that we all uh, kind of agree with, not 100%, but saying that we think it's safe enough to use on, our, on my patient, whatever it is. Then we take it to the bedside. And this is one of the uh, cultural things that's most important is they never work. We've never had a protocol work.
1: From the out of the gate? Out of the gate.
2: On an average, we'll change the protocol five times in the first day. Um, That also uh, goes with why we don't like taking it up through the executive committee and all of those kinds of things. We prefer to do it at the local level so that we can change it very rapidly uh, as we find unsafe things in it. And so the nurse, and the way we do this to make it safe, is we have a very good nurse that uh, understands the uh, what's going on, and she will take it and she'll use it on one patient for one shift. That's all. And if there's... Any time that she questions that it may be doing the wrong thing, she'll go back and talk to the docs and say, I'm uncomfortable with this. So it's very safe, and we've never harmed a patient in doing this, what we call rapid cycle trials, which comes out of the IHI uh, philosophy. So we try it then, and then we look at what didn't work. We bring it back. We revise the protocol and try it on another patient. Is, a, is the role of a champion critical at that phase or of having one person? It's critical, and it's amazing where your champions come from. Uh, the champion may be a nurse. It may not be the docs at all. Our potassium protocol was championed by one of our nurses called Vanessa. And uh, she says, I, I'm sick and tired of calling the house staff in the middle of the night and telling them the potassium's low and uh, because I already know what to do. Why don't we just do it? And not only that is, what do I do when the when the house staff give me the wrong answer? Then it becomes they may have much more experience than the house staff they're calling. Right, and then it becomes a confrontation. And she says, I think we ought to do a protocol. And so she championed that protocol. And uh, the idea initially, when we started doing that, was it be a, an ad hoc committee that would disappear after the protocol was implemented. But it turns out that if you're the champion. You're the champion forever. You can never get out from under it.
1: And so you were going through the rapid uh, cycling phase, figuring out sort of major areas mm-hmm. of,
2: of improving it. Then what happened? Well, usually after four or five cycles, uh, you've got a protocol. It's fairly safe. Uh, in fact, it's actually very safe. It's fairly effective, and it's reliable. The important thing, though, is what is done to the culture because as you watch this protocol work better and better, more and peop- more and more people have buy-in. They say, yeah, it works. It works great. By the way, I didn't get called in the middle of the night. And uh, so the whole culture starts to change. And the development of the protocol, that process, is changing the culture of the ICU. How, how do you deal with, let's say you have one,
1: or if there's a difference of opinion fundamentally at senior-level clinicians about what it should look like? How, how are some mm-hmm. ways of going handling that kind of a problem?
2: Well, initially, the way we uh, started out was if a physician really objected to the protocol, we would just say, fine, we won't use it on your patient. By the way, we are going to collect data, though, because we have to have data to make it a scientific process as we create change. And in the end, we'll let you look at your data and our data, and you can decide if this is a terrible thing to do or not. Uh, and early on, we did have some uh, what we call opt-outs that uh, would opt not to have their patient used on them. But over the years, though, that's disappeared. We, we no longer have those kinds of physicians. They've had so much experience now with developing and using protocols that uh, we've come to consensus fairly rapidly.
1: Once you develop a, a stable protocol, how often does it need to be revisited? I know I've read in some of your papers that it really needs to be kept alive. Somebody needs to be loving it and, and keeping it going. Can you tell us more about that?
2: Well, one of the most important things is you set up a long-term monitor. And so through that long-term monitor and the feedback, then you uh, find uh, problems as they develop. Or as new concepts come along, new literature or whatever, we decide to incorporate that into our thinking. A good example of that was our brain edema protocol, which we used for several years. Because of newer thinking and uh, newer knowledge, we've now remodified those again. But uh, you do have a shepherd, and that's what that champion that was supposed to disappear ends up doing is uh, even two years later, somebody come up and say, hey, I don't like this. This is not working right in this patient. Maybe we ought to take a look at that protocol again, and that champion then kind of goes back and relooks at the protocol
1: um You know, I could talk to you all day long, so I'm going to pick one more of these to talk to you about cooling after cardiac arrest one of the some of the resistance that one might be concerned about is that it's uh, a lot of work from a nursing staff perspective, but clearly needs to be done, and there must be techniques to I would imagine you would say you started, and then you actually find out if it is a lot of work or, or I'll let you talk about that.
2: Uh, Well, that's true of any protocol. Uh, The glucose protocol turned out to be a lot of work for nurses. Um, But through careful study, we found that that a lot of the work was not because of the protocol, but because they spent uh, 15 minutes trying to find the glucometer. Uh, We only had one glucometer in the unit, and other nurses were using it and things like that. And with a small amount of money to purchase more glucometers, that went away. Uh, so
1: carefully looking at the process. I remember I thought it was in another one of your papers where there was another protocol and it was they were checking the urine-specific gravity and there was, like, no reason for it and you just stopped checking it. Is right. that right?
2: Yes. And uh, you mentioned the hypothermia, though. Uh, it turns out it depends on how you do it. I mean, there's new catheters out if you want the technology that can do it without so much work. We still use the surface cooling technique, and that requires uh, the nurses. But we not only use the nurses, we also use the respiratory therapist and our uh, unit uh, uh, technicians and uh, even our uh, unit clerk, if she's available, uh, can help uh, rub the patient and keep the skin uh, well perfused and uh, get the the temperature down. And uh, the, more, the more experience you have with it, the better you get at it. Uh, but there is a certain amount of uh, work that goes into one. And a lot of that has to do with selling uh, on the front end how important this is, that it actually does change outcomes. Uh, the glucose is the same thing. It is more work for nurses. But as the nurses see better outcomes and better survivals and less renal failure and stuff, uh, they're well, more than willing to uh, put in the extra work. Uh, to make it happen.
1: I personally have had the great opportunity today to speak with Dr. Terry Klemmer. He's the director of critical care at the University of Utah LDS Hospital, and he served as the moderator for the Congress session on creating a holistic environment in the ICU. Thanks so much for being with us today. Okay, thank you. This concludes our podcast for Sunday, January 8th, 2006, The Society's Critical Care Congress offers the opportunity to hear from critical care experts on a variety of cutting-edge topics. Thanks again for listening.
0: The Society's new conference, Excellence in Quality and Safety in Critical Care, in Baltimore, Maryland, USA, September 21st through 23rd, 2006, will bring together leading experts to examine patient safety, adverse medical events, and preventable medical errors, as well as identify everyday solutions to incorporate into practice. Using evidence-based studies and proven guidelines, participants will learn how to create a more efficient and safer ICU. In addition, pre-courses in coding and billing practices or medical emergency and rapid response teams will be offered. Register today by calling 1-847-827-6888 or visiting www.sccm.org.